You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kassang and I, Niels Kasteblasen, where each week we take the polls of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Jim, great to be back with you, uh, as always. It's been a busy few weeks since we last spoke. How are you doing? Doing well. The summer is uh, at its best part uh, here in Chicago, so we're uh, enjoying the, the weather here and uh, School's about to start, so we're going to the fall, which I think has not only uh, an effect on, on us as humans, but obviously the markets as well. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Now, we've got a, um, a really good lineup, uh, very expansive. We probably won't get to all of the points, but we'll be tackling as many as we can. Um, but before we do that, I always uh, like to know kind of what's been on your radar the last few weeks. There's so much noise out there. I was just wondering if there's anything that caught your attention other than the topics, of course, we're going to be speaking about. Yeah, I think the biggest stuff is from 30,000 feet, the kind of push and pull that we see from a, you know, a macro kind of overhang, things that move much slower, bigger liquidity issues, the news that keeps uh, coming out tied to those uh, bigger structural issues, and then the underlying flows, which have been very, very supportive, actually, in the context of, of that big macro liquidity kind of uh, issues. So that push and pull, I think, is that tug of war, which we've seen a lot over the last several years, is particularly uh, becoming more prominent, more um, dynamic. Uh, it's a sumo market. You know, these guys are really big pushing back and forth, something I've referred to in the past. So I think I think that's my biggest takeaway. Uh, there's there's so much vol supply on the market that, that that's really playing a dramatic role um, in, in a lot of the market microstructure. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, um, you know, as we as we go here. Absolutely. Before we do uh, all of that, uh, I, as usual, will just give a quick update on the world of trend following, which is incredibly uneventful uh, at the moment. Another very quiet week, uh, at least at the time of recording, which is Thursday afternoon. But perhaps uh, investors are saving up all their energy for uh, Jackson Hole next week. You never know. Um, I actually um, did look at our own 30-year track record in our trend-following strategy. And frankly, August has been pretty volatile historically. So perhaps, um, you know, many of the market participants are on holiday, of course, during this month. And maybe that's why we can push the markets from time to time a little bit more than the necessary, and that will give more um, variation in performance during this month of August. But in any event, as I mentioned, performance is pretty steady at the moment, flat, slightly down, nothing too much. I don't know about you, James, just something that I thought of now. Um, do you have any memory of how vol tends to do during August or the summer months? I mean, is there some kind of seasonal pattern in volatility? Oh my goodness, seasonality. So I do I ever listen. Uh, seasonality, much like a lot of trend, is a function, or well, not trend. I, I shouldn't say trend. That's the wrong word to use around you. But uh, you know, people who are who, <laughs> I don't want to trigger, uh, you know, retaliation here. What I mean by that is, by more technical kind of factors tend to be a function of real core structural realities of the market, things that we study very closely um, that 
correlation of these, uh, the calendar to these factors is what causes seasonality. But they're not as consistent as the calendar. There's different things that you know, have a tendency to, um, to be better in diff- or worse during different times. And some of that is direct beginning of month to end of month calendar. Some of it is uh, expiration cycles, which are middle of the month, middle of the month. And some of it, uh, you know, again, is very much tied to, and some of those things can be negative during these periods or positive as a function of other factors that tend to be maybe more positive or negative on their own. So I'll give you some examples that are directly related to what we're seeing now. Um, August uh, expiration is an expiration that as soon as you hit August expiration, which we're about to, by the way, here on this Friday, you open up to the next cycle, next main monthly options cycle, where there's a ton of open interest and a ton of kind of imbalance in the market. And the option side, that's the SEP quarterly. There are four quarterly expirations. These are the biggest because structured products are tied to them. There's a, the overwhelming majority of, of volume that, that drives into these these four expirations. Uh, they are March, June, September, and December, right? December is less relevant because there are other factors, right? Uh, but the other ones, if you look at them, it's not a coincidence that Feb into March, which we've talked about with the COVID crash and lots of other uh, occurrences, is is a is a major kind of it's the second worst month. Uh, February is particularly the back half of February um, before kind of the spring gets started. It's not a coincidence that sell in May and go away is a thing because again, mid May you transition into that June opex and the risk that exists there. It doesn't mean every month it's going to be bad, to be clear, but there's more tail risk and more potential volatility that exists in those environments. SEP, again, generally mid-August is when this stuff starts. People say SEP is the worst month, but really from late mid-August, late August through September is when things tend to happen. And again, this is a major factor. There are other factors as well you know, that play into this. There are less holidays during this, this period um, you know, this, uh, really since, uh, since Juneteenth, right. Or sorry, July 4th, right. There is a span from July 4th all the way, except for Labor Day here in the United States, all the way till you hit Thanksgiving where there's only one, one holiday. And that means there's just more volume, uh, and, and more, um, more time-weighted volume. It's also more, uh, more ac- ac- participants coming back after the summer. Now you get to late, mid to late August into September. And those things all matter because, now participants have to rebalance, have to participate, have to are more involved. There are other factors which, in an up year, are very positive. Um, at the end of each month, there is a collateral increase. The markets are about forty trillion, as we've discussed here in the U.S. Eighty trillion globally, four hundred fifty trillion dollars of long assets. If the market's up twenty percent on the year, that is just in the U.S. eight trillion dollars of new collateral that can that can uh, underpin new risk taking, um, and and. Obviously, each month that you're up, you know, we've had 5% plus months recently. That means a ton of positive flows going into end of month, beginning of month. However, when you start to see retracement of some of those gains, you see the opposite at the end of the month. And here we are down uh, already in the month. We've seen some support going into August expiration, but you're going to see less support into the end of the month uh, than usual. If anything, some supply. Uh, you're seeing the removal of the, you know, the support from Mana and Charm Flows, which I talk so much about on here, going into this August expiration. You have a lot of risks sitting out there in the SEP OPEX and all the open interest there. So these are some of the clues and some of the ways you think about seasonality and why the trends of seasonality exist, but they're not tied to the calendar. They're not a magical construct 
tied to the moon. They are um, they are tied to uh, to these other flows, which are tied to volatility, expiration cycles, about the repurchasing of assets as you go, and the reinvestment of assets as you go into end of month, et cetera. Um, but the fall is, I don't see as tends to be weak for a lot of these reasons. And it's not just the fall in general, it's particularly as we reach this August expiration here and we start to move into uh, the sub-opex. What a timely um, point to have you uh, on, uh, I would say, after that uh, explanation. Now, before we jump into the uh, topics, uh, you mentioned uh, quickly performance, uh, S&P struggling a bit. My own trend barometer closed at 41 yesterday. That's neutral. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, it looks like so far, at least this month, it's a pretty flat uh, month. B top 50 up eight basis points, up six basis points for the year. Sockgen CTA up 42 basis points, uh, down 64 basis, basis points for the year. Sockgen Trend uh, flat for the month, down 1.38 for the year. And the Sockgen Short-Term Traders Index down 40 basis points in August and down 3.5% for the year. And uh, as you, Jim, alluded to, MSCI World down 4.5% this month, up 124 for the year. Government bonds uh, taking a hit again this month, down 1.23%. I'm sure we'll come back to that. And the S&P 500 down 4% as of yesterday of 147 uh, for the year. I want to kick off kind of uh, at a high-level question. You know, people say that volatility trading is very complicated and it should be left to the professionals. But if we go back in history a little bit at least, it strikes me that there seemed to be a very quote-unquote simple pattern that started a few years ago. Let's think back to 2017, where stocks were doing well and volatility kept dropping and these short vol products did exceptionally well and attracting a lot of investor capital. We then had a short and somewhat unexpected for some uh, equity correction in around February of 18. And volatility uh, was rising, significant for a few days, maybe for a couple of weeks. All the naive short vol funds blew up, long vol strategies did well and became popular for a while. Central banks came in, calmed things down, equity markets started to rise, long vol funds starts to bleed and become unpopular, short vol funds starts to do well, it sucks in investor capital yet again and what you know, a virus comes along. Then volatility explodes, short vol strategies get roasted and long vol funds do well if they manage to monetize their positions at the right time, of course, and long vol strategies become popular again for a while. But then something new happens. Stocks start to fall, but in an orderly fashion. So despite stocks going down, the pattern repeats. Long vol falls starts to bleed and short vol funds do well. And that's pretty much where we are today. Now, so if I was a guessing man, I would say that the likelihood of something happening that would get volatility to spike, short vol funds to get hit, and long vol, uh, long vol funds to do well, at least for a short period of time, is pretty high based on this pattern in the last few years. So I'm curious, of course, to know from an expert, is vol trading that predictable? It is. The timing, I mean, human nature is predictable. Uh, uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you just alluded to the most recent several years. Uh, if you wanted to extend that sign curve, I can go back a couple more years. You know, August 15, massive vol. Uh, and we've talked about this at, at a point. So massive vol event uh, relative to the beta of the move. That was the yuan devaluation. Feb 16 uh, was actually 
the biggest decline since we had since 09, 12%, massive underperformance of vol. What, what comes after that? The Volpocalypse that you alluded to, 18, uh, followed by Ocnodice, the biggest decline since we had a, since 09 again, massive vol underperformance because it was three months, it was a slow grind and vol, um, you know, was very well supplied. Fast forward to COVID crash, vol overperformance again, and then now 2022 underperformance into the decline. So it's not just three data points and I could go back further than that, right? It is a sine curve, and that is human nature. People crowd into what's working. Um, you know, people always think the risk in the markets is to the downside, right? Um, the reality is the risk is two-sided. Uh, if you're an investment professional, we both know uh, if you don't match a benchmark, right? If, if the markets continues to rally, particularly for majority of long long-only funds um, or or thereabouts, they have to be more invested, and the individual investor also feels that FOMO. But it's a real existential fear that happens at the end of these rallies. People have to be in the market. They feel like if they're not, they're going to go out of business. And for many people, that's actually true. They will go out of business if they do not meet that beta. So people have to take risk when the market starts presenting itself. Um, but the opposite side of that is when you know you get a COVID crash, when you get a volpocalypse, when you get these massive vol events, um, the people who are short vol, right, um, get blown out. And uh, the people who held vol, who were brave enough to stay in through those cycles or to time it right, um, get paid with convex returns. And that just changes the supply and demand dynamics under the hood in terms of who's still around. But it also changes, guess what? People look at the recent performance. They say, oh, I like that fund. That fund's doing well. And people invest in that. Or why would you ever invest in a shortfall fund? Did you see how many funds blew out during COVID? Guess what? Nobody's talking about that anymore, right? Um, so this is human nature, and this is why that sine curve exists. I think we know that. I just, you know, to make it very clear. So where are we on that, you know, spectrum? Well, everybody got taken out to the cleaners in 22. That was long vol into that decline. And vol didn't work. If you're a long stock, long vol didn't work, right? So we are moving along a spectrum of people selling more and more vol, uh, you know, being less and less hedged um, and vol being less popular from the long side and being more popular from the short side. Um, now that doesn't, you know, I wish I could say it happens every six months or every year or every year and a half or two. I wish I could give you the exact timing. Um, it's not that easy because there are other factors that kind of rotate around it. And this time, and I think we'll dive into this maybe a little bit later, it's a little bit different because the the vol supply um, is being driven by some other factors other than just short speculation. There's some structural vol supply. And I think that may extend the picture, even though we are heading down that sine curve. Yeah, and we're definitely going to dive into that. But before, because that was kind of a, an, a reason why I asked you this um, question. And one other question came up as you were talking. So the first thing I thought about when I just heard your response there, I was thinking, what does that mean? And I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes when I say this. I mean, does that really mean that you shouldn't buy a long or short vol fund? Really, you need to have something that can do both. Um, I think you can buy a long or short fund as long as the, the person who is managing it or the entities managing it um, are able to be fairly dynamic and have a 
deep understanding of these realities. If, if the long fund you're buying, I think this is the problem with the perception of ball. People say, well, if you're long a ball fund, all they're doing is going and buying puts and they're buying the same puts or same put spread or whatever the strategy is over and over. Um, yeah, if you buy an ETF that just does the same strategy over and over, that's long vol or short vol, guess what? During certain periods, that's not going to work. In other ones, it's more likely to work. But there is a real ability to understand positioning uh, and predict the probabilities, right, of certain different outcomes um, with a higher degree of probability than, than random uh, by a significant margin. And it's also possible to look at a relative value and see what's cheap and what's expensive dynamically and use those two edges to really, whether you're on the short side or long side, create real alpha and provide both edge from a short vol perspective and long perspective or from a neutral perspective. And the key there, much like any strategy, is finding somebody who's worth their salt and knows what they're doing. Um, so, so no, I, you should not go just blindly invest in long vol strategies and no, you shouldn't go invest in short vol strategies either because either one can, can, can totally blow up in your face, just like any strategy can, if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Now, again, I'm building up to my, my, my bigger question, but I need to throw this in uh, as well. And that is another thing that I think people probably have noticed uh, with volatility. And again, you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that these vol spikes, when they do occur, they're becoming shorter and shorter in time. I mean, they last, some of them just days. Is there a reason why that may be uh, happening, so to speak? I think characterizing that over a, a kind of more medium-term time frame, again, I try not to look at things in years, but in kind of five, 10-year even kind of uh, perspectives, I think clearly the market is becoming, there's a lot more volume, a lot more participants. There's a higher degree of sophistication broadly, even though there are also more naive participants uh, you know, involved as well. It's a more mature market in that sense. And so people understand the realities of insurance and the realities of there's a premium that generally is priced to these things. So there's a popularity to being short them given the right windows where it's more likely to be the case. And I think that does create a situation where there's just broadly more liquidity and more sophistication participants who are willing to come put markets back in line to kind of some some uh, equilibrium. Whereas maybe in more liquid times, uh, that equilibrium was hard to reach because there just wasn't enough liquidity broadly. Um, so I agree with that broad concept. That said, I think we've also seen more extreme moves, right? I think what you're feeling is not just that they, they get dampened quick more quickly, which is, I think, in the last year and a half true because of all supply. But I think the general reality that, yes, things get pulled back into uh, equilibrium more quickly is probably fairly true. But I don't think uh, you know we're giving enough credit to how extreme some of these moves we've seen and historic they are. Don't forget, Feb March 2020 was the biggest one-month move in, in history. Uh, you know, we've seen dramatic moves under the hood in other, you know, maybe not the index level, but in, in, in rotation and breadth and in, in extreme vol moves uh, and think about meme names and other things, right? You, you know, crazy extreme leptocritic moves across the market, um, you know, outside of equities, bonds, uh, you know, precious metals, commodities, right? Um, you know, oil went to negative 30 and then, you know, went to 120, right? It's, you know, in a matter of years. 
So yeah, I, yes, I would say the characteristics of the market are changing, but that's partially because vol markets themselves are playing a bigger role. They are more sophisticated broadly in the sense that you have more participants that are willing to hop in and put them back into place, but they are so big and there's so many, uh, they're big, becoming bigger than the market in the sense that, that when a liquidity strikes, the moves can be dramatically bigger for some shorter period of time. Okay. All right. No, that, that's great. So now here comes where I was going with this. So you see on Wednesday next week, so in, only in a few days from now, we will be releasing what I think is one of the most important episodes we've ever done. And it's with Neil Howe, the New York Times bestselling author and co-author of the book, The Fourth Turning. But perhaps more relevant, he just published his follow-up called The Fourth Turning is Here. Now, of course, uh, you have uh, not listened to this conversation yet, Jim. But what I can reveal is that Neil is quite worried about how bad The Fourth Turning could end, which isn't until 10 years from now, really. And he does expect a lot more volatility in the years ahead. Now, since he was pretty spot on, uh, when back in 1997, I think it was, they wrote about the period we were going through right now, I have little reason to think that he will be wrong in his prediction. And I wonder if you can imagine and perhaps even describe what it will take to have a much higher base level of volatility. So instead of an average of the VIX, say 15 to 20, perhaps it goes as high and as long, you know, much higher, much longer at a base level of 50. What what will it take? And I know I'm asking you to speculate here, but I think we can go there. What 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 will it take, do you think, to get to a level? Because I don't think necessarily you completely disagree with what Neil is expecting. Well, this could be a two-hour conversation. I have a lot to say about this. Um, for one, I will go on record for saying I, I completely agree that we're entering something that I think uh, is fair to be characterized as a fourth turning. Um, I have laid out my reasons for why I think that's the case, which are somewhat different. They're related, but somewhat different than hows. Um, they're related, but I think I have a, a broad framework for talking about this. And it's really tied to this inequality and populism factor and what that means demographically for the younger generation. That's really the driving factor. In my opinion, that's why these things happen. That's why these cycles happen. And that's how it's playing out. And, and once you, again, this is again kind of almost like looking at trend or not trend again, uh, technicals and understanding like what, what happens and then understanding why. And I think I have a very good hold. And we've been talking about this for three years, uh, about what we'd like to see. We've been pretty spot on with it, not just in terms of what markets are doing, but more importantly, in terms of what the trends are in, in, in political and in, in social kind of means. And, and when you start to look at what's happening under the hood and you are, are a student of history and you look at the other periods that are related and try to understand what might happen during these periods as a function of that you now begin to kind of be able to say, okay, the probabilities from a, on a 10-year time frame based on what we know are X, Y, and Z. What we've seen during periods of inflation, during, a, during times of increasing interest rates that are generally tied to populism are periods where you have less global trade, 
deglobalization broadly, more conflict between countries economically, militarily, in every way. Why? Because populism, people are local. People care about their people, not their other people. Uh, when you talk about supply-side economics or monetary policy, that is international. When you send money to corporations, corporations work across borders to break down borders. It is the power of entropy and, and uh, to, to get to the cheapest, most profitable place. And that's incredibly powerful. That's what we've been experiencing for 40 years, but that created inequality. And now the populism is, what about my people? Fiscal stimulus is to the people of a country. And so that's what we're amidst right now. And that deglobalization takes us from a time of cooperation to competition. It causes resource scarcity, causes OPEC to stand in and say, I'm going to control price. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the food crises that we've seen during these periods, the energy crises, these are coincidences. The fact that we started the last Cold War in the 1970s, the fact that we had our last hot war in the form of Vietnam War, not a coincidence that we're seeing the same things. Now. We've kind of covered this. These things are all connected and these give that thrust to the cycle. And again, it's because it's not just stratification, but because it's generational. It's based on the experiences of the young and the young are labor when they leave high school and college. They are the bottom of the distribution. That leads to a broad societal change. That's why we're entering the fourth turning among some other bigger, longer cycle factors coming to a head at the same time. So the natural supposition there is, well, volatility must increase during those times. We've done quite a bit of work on this. In the 1970s, we had three recessions, quite a few from 68 to 82. Um, we had a tremendous amount of volatility um, in uh, economic volatility, uh, global volatility. If you talk to somebody in the late 60s, early 70s about what it felt like, you know, People felt like the world was coming apart at the seams. We had race, you know, equality conversations here in the U.S. and globally. Not a surprise that those things are coming to a head as well now, right? All of those things felt like the world was coming to an end. A lot of assassinations, right? JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy here in the U.S., all of these things are connected. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just want to say one thing for those who may not be so familiar with Neil's work. I mean, you're absolutely right in pointing these things out. But the 70s wasn't a fourth turning. So that's that period is a transition period as well. It's an awakening which actually are labeled in the US as well. So definitely not a coincidence at all in what you say. But fourth turnings are even worse. Right. So I do think this is a a, a major turning point, um, like a 40, 50-year you know, turning point. And again, I think we've seen, I could go back to the 40, 50 year period before, which is, you know, the, the, the 30s, right? Uh, and, and into the 40s, right? Which was obviously, we know another time of dramatic conflict, et cetera. And for a lot of the similar reasons, not a surprise, we had the New Deal in the 30s. We had the Great Society Program in the 60s. We have now the, uh, you know, the Biden fiscal, you know, COVID uh, stimulus now. But the bigger point here that I'm trying to get to and, and, and to tie it to volatility, which is your question, is that. Ironically, during periods like this, when you have inflationary periods, assets are nominal and particularly equities, you know, and, and other assets are nominal. So the first order effects of inflation, which is a natural output of, of this, this populism, is to dampen downside volatility. If you get 10% inflation a year for 
uh, 10 years on average or whatever it is, right? Markets will naturally normalize. That will decrease the value of longer term skew in the market. Um, you know, this is the old shaving of coins. You can fix markets, right? Nominally without people noticing by simply taking away the buying power over time. You haven't actually reduced real volatility. You've reduced, you know, your, your real volatility is probably still uh, just as high. But uh, from a nominal perspective, you can dramatically reduce volatility. During the 14-year period, 68 to 82, as we've talked about, markets went nowhere in nominal terms, but they lost 70% in real terms. Ironically, during from 1929 to 1943, right? You take that 14-year period, markets also, uh, in real terms, lost 70% of their value. The, the losses were much more dramatic in nominal terms because you didn't have inflation. You had deflation. And the reason you had deflation is because the Federal Reserve was not dominant. We were still tied to the gold standard and we had they, had, they didn't have the flexibility to shave the coins, right? Like they've been able to do in the last crisis. And we still have that flexibility now. So my belief is that, yes, we'll have real volatility in, long, in, in assets and in hard assets and stocks even, but that actual nominal volatility, ironically, is not going to be as high as people expect if anything will continue to get compressed over time because the put in markets will become bigger and bigger. 68, we had a 24 uh, approximately price to earnings ratios, record price to sales at the time. Uh, by 82, it was a four and a half price to earnings and margins had dramatically normalized. So price to sales was much more normalized. GDP growth was strong. Um, you know, it wasn't about, uh, yes, we had three recessions and more volatility under the hood, but net GDP growth was strong. That should be the case in this populist type environment that we're entering as well. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to have vol a volatile world. And I think that's a distinction that's very important. Um, we are going to have a volatile world. And I think, as we saw in the six, late 60s through to 1982 as well, we saw dramatic asset volatility outside of long assets. So FX volatility, precious metals volatility, um, you know, rates volatility. These things were historic and didn't stop for a decade, right? They normalized to dramatically higher levels. But that wasn't this. Actually, the opposite was true for, let's say, commodity, industrial commodities. Industrial commodities had a dramatically low volatility. Yes, they had an upward slope and they were continued to work their way higher, but they had a new put in the form of uh, you know, resource scarcity and entities with more power, much like the Fed had a put, that resource, um, that, that oil put was in the market during that time, um, and that dramatically reduced volatility. So anyway, I think it's nuanced is my point, um, and understanding that we'll be getting likely volatility, we'll be getting leptocritic outcomes in terms of the world and certain parts of the market, but it's important to also understand that nominal is not real and that financial assets can often create less volatile situations. Anyway, a bit of a diatribe. That's why I said this could be a two-hour conversation, but I think- No, I mean, um, I took you there, so I really appreciate that. I think you have a very interesting point. And by the way, in fairness, what Neil will also talk about in a few days when we release the episode is the fact that you actually never know how a fourth turning point uh, um, pans out, which is the scary part uh, in his view. Uh, and he is worried, uh, not least about, well- volatility in his view, um, but it could be also, as you say, geopolitical volatility, of course, but also inflation and, and interest rates. But we'll leave that for now. Maybe we'll, you and I will talk about it 
once you've listened to the episode and, and we'll do that next time you're on. So uh, we'll see. And of course, you and I have talked about this. I have shared this view about high interest rates and inflation uh, for two or three years. And I know you have as well. So I think we're you know, very much in line. Um, and it, it kind of ties a little bit into something I noticed in your latest uh, news update or quarterly update, um, which I, I um, thought was interesting. Not necessarily we want to go there because you've got a lot of topics as well. Um, but you did go on by uh, ending the uh, quarterly update by saying Powell's Id- idolization of Volcker and current embracing of his own Volcker moment is politically Uh, expedient, misguided, and destined to fail. The long end of the curve has yet to wake up to this reality as inflation stabilizes at a higher plateau in the years to come. The coming loss of credibility at the Fed will likely mark a period of increased global volatility and a second let down. And what I wanted to say with that is credibility is, of course, very closely tied to confidence. And you and I are recording in only a few days uh, with perhaps the foremost expert on confidence, namely Peter Atwater, who we last spoke to uh, in June of last year, you and I, and it's a very timely point for him to uh, to rejoin us for a conversation. All right. Now, you know, we don't coordinate our our topics uh, many uh, days in advance, let's put it that way. So there's another point I actually uh, found in your latest quarterly I wanted to ask you about. I hope that's okay. It's a little bit tight maybe to what we talked about here, but maybe there's something in it when I remind you uh, of it that, that makes it even more current. Maybe you have a different angle. And it's actually something you and I never really discuss a lot. Uh, other than we did a little bit with Peter Zion last year, and it's demographics. I noticed you spend quite a few ch- pages, and you have some great charts uh, with the Gen Z and Menil- Millenniums and Gen X and all of that population. You you talk about ownership of these different uh, generations, and you also uh, talk about unions at Starbucks. Do you want to say a few words about that particular topic? I, I actually find it very interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, few things are as uh, direct to supply and demand and future outcomes as demographics. Demographics is destiny. But that doesn't just mean the number of people. The reason it's critical in this time is um, because millennials represent a new bubble, right, in terms of the number of, of people, and importantly, the number of voters, right, coming to political dominance right as the last bubble is dying. And that is a handoff that's happening every year. Every four years in election cycle, there's a dramatic change in the number of voters. And the shift could not be more dramatic in terms of political beliefs between the two. And again, to to Hal's point, these things happen. This isn't a coincidence. They, they almost are defined in relative to one another. They exist because of one another. Millennials grew up during a period of massive increasing wealth inequality. Uh, we had 1.75% average real GDP growth over their, their 30 years of, of growth, right? Um, uh, coming to, to maturity. And only 075 of that went to labor per year. The other 1% for the whole group went to the top 1%. So it was almost 100% right growth in the very, very top 1% in terms of wealth 
um, in terms of income. And all of that has created, if you do that for 40 years, 30, 40 years, that's a lot. Compounding at 100% is quite a bit for 30 years. And so, you know, we've gone from a, a, a 0.32 Gini coefficient here in the US to, I believe it's 0.46 now, a dramatic change in inequality and the distribution of wealth. We're in line with most third world countries now. And this is not a political comment on my end, it just is. And over, if you have a population that was by definition, I think this is the critical point that people don't make. It's not just wealthy versus poor. It's older versus younger, because if you were a baby boomer, you had assets. And as assets went up uh, and corporations did well, you did well. And if you were coming out of college or high school at that time, at the beginning of that, or throughout this process, it was difficult to get a job. It was difficult to get, um, you know, to, to gain more wealth and more labor power um, as corporations did, did more for all the reasons we talked about. So there is a universal feeling among millennials that the system is broken. It doesn't work for them. They have 40% of the household formation, 40% of the wealth creation that baby boomers did at this age. That's the critical point. They are way behind. They're living, many of them are living in their parents' basements, still unable to afford a home, et cetera. Those things create a real distrust for government, a feeling that um, a focus on justice and equity and uh, equality and fairness, right? And these things we've seen again in other periods lead to political change. And that is what's driving populism. And it's not just the generational piece. It's also that they're so big and they are um, gaining more and more political power every year. Um, it's not a coincidence that starting about a decade ago, the left moved dramatically left in Bernie Sanders and AOC, and that the right also did the same thing. We had uh, Occupy Wall Street. We had Tea Party, left and right, similar things starting about a decade ago. But it took a bit more years, almost another decade, uh, for, for Trump to bring the right left, populist in terms of rhetoric at least, at least kicking and screaming, and the left to go even more left. Got a spark in terms of COVID. And then comes the political water, you know, the, the fiscal waterfall and the move towards populism. So demographics is destiny, um, but it's but it's not just the size of the group. It's the um, it is the zeitgeist of the group um, and 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 how it gets formed and why as a function of of stratification as well. Yeah, and 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 for those uh, again, I really truly hope every single one of you will uh, tune in on uh, Wednesday when we release uh, the one with episode with Neil Howe, people should just be aware that it is the millennials that will actually rebuild not just the US, but pretty much the world, because these turnings have now become synchronized because of the big world wars we've had. But they're the ones who are going to rebuild after everything falls apart. And that's why they're so, so important. All right, Jim, with that little appetizer for our regular topics that you brought along where we're going to dive much more into the here and now this was some big picture stuff that i just wanted to hear your thoughts on we have had and you know obviously a little bit after we last spoke but we've had what you describe as a three weeks kind of stair step down uh, action in the uh, in the equity markets there's a big talk of war going on at the moment between flows and macro can you take us into that world? What's going on? How do you see things at the moment? Absolutely. So, you know, last time we talked, 
uh, we had a conversation about, uh, you know, some of the coming at the time liquidity drain, you know, coming from uh, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, liquidity up until, call it two months ago, had actually been quite strong relative to what people expected. And and that had played a significant role, right? We all know kind of all the correlation graphs between broad liquidity and and market performance. But we weren't the only ones pointing that out. This is kind of well-known, well-telegraphed broadly that there would be um, a significant liquidity drain. It was a function of two things. One, uh, you know, in March when liquidity, uh, you know, the quantitative tightening was really getting going, you know, we had a banking crisis. There was a bunch of liquidity pushed in to uh, save those banks. But then on the back end of that, after that, we had uh, a, a debt ceiling issue here in the United States. And that forced also a uh, TGA, a Treasury General Account drawdown, which also pushed a bunch of liquidity back in the market. So starting really back in July, um, or maybe even late June, we it was clear that we had you know, 1.3, 1.2 to $1.6 trillion of new issu- issuance that was going to be coming on the market in the next nine months. Well, well, what happened? Uh, the the Treasury was very aware of the potential risks, and uh, whereas people thought, well, they're going to fill you know six hundred, eight hundred billion of this in the next month and a half, they're going to have to. Well, they cut it in half. They shortened the duration. They started to kind of really step lightly into it because they wanted to make sure it didn't disturb markets. And what happened? Well, you know, given the pe- that people were reflexively preparing for it. Um, we began to see, yes, the liquidity come down, but markets take off. And the, the decline was not that dramatic. You see, by the way, in these liquidity graphs, even there's like a 0.97 correlation, right? You see one-year periods where they diverge. It happens. They just come back into line. Uh, you know, notably 2019, starting in early 2019 till uh, February 2020 in the crash, there was a massive divergence between these models. And then guess what? line. So these things aren't a straight line, right? You, you can't use these models. These are big macro liquidity flows. They matter. They will, you know, historically with a point x correlation, they will eventually, right, come in line. The question is how long can they diverge and how? But we talked about these things and, and that they're a macro overhang and, and um, nobody really seemed to care for a couple of months, right? The markets kind of kept going but then all of a sudden you start seeing some other, you know, it's like hollowing out the, the inside of a, of a sand dune, right? Uh, you don't see it from the outside, but the fragility continues to build. And then all of a sudden, like that last couple of pieces of sand happens and things start to cave in a little bit. Um, and I think that's how I would characterize the, these liquidity draws. Well, guess what? They had to soft pedal it early on. So now they got it accelerated. So they started announcing, okay, we're going to extend duration. We're going to accelerate the amount we need to do. I think from a political perspective, I think Yellen, you know, and Biden who are obviously this isn't a conspiracy. They're they her job is to to work directly under uh the president and, and do his bidding. You know, I think the political thing thought is well, we rather get out in front of this now because we can't just keep putting it off because otherwise we're gonna have a problem come election season a year and a half from now. So they came and announced that they're going to have to do more issuance, extend duration, et cetera. That market didn't like that all of a sudden this month. And then guess what? Uh, these are all part of the same thing. These are the things we've been talking about. Then right as that's happening, Japan, not a coincidence, starts to say, well, we need to raise interest rates too. And the market starts to worry, well, if they're raising interest rates, that probably means less liquidity for US 
uh, bonds as well. And guess what? The you know the yield started going higher and higher, and have been working their way higher. And then guess what? Fitch all of a sudden opens their mouth and says, "Well, you know, if we're going to issue so much debt, maybe that's a we got to downgrade. This is a problem." And then Moody's chimes in, right? So everybody points to each one of these as like, "Oh, new news! Something new is happening. Markets are at risk. Macro, like that's why markets are going up." Nonsense. The reality is, yeah, I mean, yes, they matter, but they don't, it's all what we know. And we've been talking about for several months, just things can diverge for a while until the actual core liquidity accelerates and it overwhelms the flows. So that's the macro picture, right? That's what we are up against. And it's not linear. Uh, it doesn't happen week over week or even month over month. Um, but once you start talking quarter over quarter or year over year, it really, really matters in the prediction. The flows, however, right? Are a different story. Several months ago, let's go back uh, three, four months ago, five months ago, um, you know, markets were pretty imbalanced. You know, people were underinvested, uh, a lot of short interest in the market. That has completely changed, right? People are back in the market. Uh, sentiment is uh, near all-time, well, not all-time highs, but, you know, recent, uh, you know, three, four-year highs. You know, you're seeing a lot more speculation, call buying in tech, you know, tech, uh, you know, beta has dramatically outperformed, yada, yada. So that the market on its core is also much, is much more balanced. So that's important. And then underneath the surface, there's this thing I kind of alluded to at the beginning of the show of there's dramatic vol supply. So markets are actually fairly in the core and the S&P 500 really, um, you know, vol is well supplied and, and very well offered, um, similar to kind of a 2017 type scenario. Obviously, higher macro flows and macro risk, but under over overhead, there is this vol supply where dealers are really well balanced and well supplied with convexity. I can get into kind of a, a little bit more detail on that in a second. But with that context um, and broadly higher skew and more concerns as the market rallies, you know, there is a uh, underlying support that naturally happens in markets. And the more markets go up, as we talked about in the seasonality conversation, the more uh, momentum there is, the more trend there is, the more all the things we know about the push can, can push things higher for some time. And during a seasonally kind of stronger period or, or less dangerous period with, where there's less liquidity and broadly more structural and quantitative supporting flows, that will kind of go on until it kind of hits a point of turning. So you've really seen this push-pull, right? So uh, now that the support here, as we go into August expiration very timely, right, has been quite strong. But during that week and a half, two weeks now, people realize what's coming, that there's not going to be this demand underneath as much, that, the, that, that we're starting to see more macro liquidity coming off. Of it. So we're, we're reaching kind of this tipping and rolling over. There are other participants that kind of realize the risks here at this, this moment, but that didn't diminish the fact that we had structurally positive, strong flows into here. So what that's created is this really stair step, very slow. I mean, if you think about it, it's been three weeks, you know, we, we got to 4,600 or 46 quarter in the S and P and now we're 44 quarter, right? 200 points over the course of three weeks is it's not, I mean, yes, it's something right, but it's not uh, it's not a volatile and the way it's played out has been very, very uh, straightforward. But now we're beginning to approach again uh, a point as we go into sub expiration where there's more potential tail risk and the potential volatility becoming a bit more unpinned and the structural flows not having the balancing, I mean, sorry, the, the macro flows not having the, the, the counterbalancing flows for, for some short period here, maybe call it three weeks. 
this window represents poten- you know, potential significant risks to the market. That said, if it doesn't get going in this window, which is the critical time where the flows do not exist as dominantly, as you get into the you know early into the SEP expiration, right? If we don't start to risk the gamma, the the downside risk in the markets, we don't get the momentum and the vol and pinning that that needs to happen in this period. That'll actually lead to more buyback and more structural flows, and more than just in this August period, actually a significant amount of vonage charm flows into September, which can then really extend the cycle a bit longer, at least counter these uh, these macro flows to a significant extent again, and can, can extend the cycle a bit longer. So we're in a very critical three-week period here. I know that sounds very specific um, and sounds almost silly in the conjunction relative to these big flows, but that's the reality. You need, in order for these uh, these macro flows to, to take over and become the market supply and demand balance to become very, very uh, supplied and and potentially create more macro risk. You really need those flows to not be as present during this period. And those flows are, they're just simple demand that if it goes away, right, um, you know, can create a, a significant problem. But again, you know, we've front run it a little bit, um, which reduces some of the potential volatility in the short term. There's people uh, are probably better prepared for it, uh, par- partially because guys like me are out there talking about it. And people see the, the trends and the the technical realities of these things. But um, but again, if we make it through this kind of three-week period called to Labor Day uh, without a significant volume pinning or uh, you know some clues that this thing is getting significantly uh, more impinned, you know, it'll likely be bought back into SEP OPEX for the last two weeks of uh, or so of SEP OPEX. And then sitting in November and December in an up year, significant collateral increases that got to go to work at the beginning of the year, um, very different than last year. We highlighted last year that you know Santa Claus and January effect wouldn't exist last year because guess what? It was a down year. And a lot of those flows, which everybody thinks are just, oh, well, those are positive periods. We're actually negative periods. Um, this year with the market up, if we don't get some kind of real drawdown here, that will uh, be supportive, not to mention all the holiday season coming. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the things that, you know, the holiday of the time-weighted uh, volume decreasing that would likely lead to a very positive November, December, early January if we don't get going here soon. So these are the reasons, again, why seasonality kind of exists like it does. It's not just a calendar effect, but it is uh, structurally a very important period and, and critical to watch. It's interesting you mentioned that. And I'm not, I have not studied this myself, but I did see someone... I don't know if you call it tweet about this anymore or whatever you do on X, but post something that said, well, because this bear market had now retraced more than, let me just say, 80 or 85% of, of the drop, you know, history just basically says it's it's going to go and make a new all-time high. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this world, we're in a... I would be very careful, again, just extracting some numbers like that and, and drawing... A, a line. Um, we haven't had inflation at all for 40 years. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that that kind of changes some of those numbers quite a bit. We have a, a very unique macro environment here in the sense that we have inflation for the first time in 40 years. And the last time we had inflation, we didn't have structured products and we didn't have derivatives. Uh, structured products, derivatives are a dramatically important part of this market. They are uh, in, in certain periods dominant to the whole market while at the same time having a completely different macro reality than we've had. So 
it's unique from a uh, from a flows and macro perspective and a market structure perspective. Um, and I think drawing any broader conclusions based on oh the market's up eighty five percent so it's going up would be would be very flawed. That having been said, go to all time highs if we don't get a a, a shot here. And, and and these things tend to go longer than than you'd ever expect. Um, like I highlighted, two thousand nineteen to twenty twenty, almost a year of complete divergence from liquidity and the market eventually came back in. Which is one thing I remember you talked about, uh, actually, that even though you might see things go, quote unquote, wrong uh, at some point, you did say earlier in the year that, yeah, I mean, we could very well have a, a massive melt up before we get to that point. It's what and, tends and I to wanna, happen. Exactly. Yeah. And I want to add one more thing just so to make sure that you have talked about it the way you want to, because before we press record, you said that one thing that you're really watching is actually the uh, the Nasdaq. So do you want to talk about why that is the case? Yeah, so this is, I think, a critical thing. I've been trying to talk about this a little bit more. This is so important to understanding markets is the connection between vol and broad markets and how they move the way they do. We have a very, very unique situation here um, in the sense, like I said, uh, last time we had inflation, we didn't have structured products or uh, derivatives at all. That's creating a, a completely new, never been seen before situation, right? Where there's a new massive feedback loop. It used to be that markets would, um, you know, if interest rates went higher, money would just simply move to the bond market, which was pretty isolated from the stock market and would decrease the demand for, for stocks in a significant way, right? What we're seeing now is, yes, that's happening. But at the same time, people aren't just going into bonds exclusively. People are looking for yield on top of those bonds. And there's a massive demand and increase in structured product demand. So what you're seeing is money moving out of the stock market and into a lot of structured products and things that essentially say, okay, yes, I want that T-bill of 5.5%, but that's not enough. I'll take my collateral and I'll stretch it to 8.5%, 9%, maybe 10 right, by supplementing it with some type of vol-compressing tool. And so that vol compression then is a massive wave of, of derivative supply to dealers, which now has a feedback loop into the stock market. By all those metrics we talked about, it pins the market, allows it to you know uh, uh, levitate a little bit longer. And, and, and then by definition, the way these lot of strategies work is if it levitates long enough or it doesn't liquidate, then come back all the buyback monocharm flows, all the things we talk about, all the natural flows that come in all the time to continue to, to hold it up or push it higher. So ironically, higher interest rates are driving vol compression and at the same time, support for the market. This is not something that existed before. So it's dampening volatility. This feeds back to our volatility conversation as well. And it's very unique. You can't look at the 70s and have market performance per se because it didn't have this element. And this element is an important feedback loop that is changing uh, and this is not vol selling like vol selling you you would think oh excite people are shorting XIV speculatively or selling iron condors. Um, these are generally low leverage. People are moving from the stock market, delevering in a sense to go into structured products. So these are strong hands, they're not weak hands. The market goes down, they're not going to go cover their structured products for the most part. They may not do any more, and that might increase vol once those start to roll off, right? But ironically, interest rates coming down now, uh, when that happens, if and when it ever happens here, is probably going to be a period for less structured product issuance and maybe an unpinning of volatility. 
uh, much more than than the opposite from a vol perspective. So it's a it's somewhat stabilizing force a, into this uh, liquidity situation. A very unique, very important topic that nobody's really talking about that I think is is critical to understand. Yeah, I mean, and actually, even in my little trend following world, um, we see kind of the same thing. I mean, people are coming out with products; they call it return stacking, and and all sorts of things where they just uh, do exactly what you describe. It and, makes sense, uh, right? If you can get ten percent. Sure. Uh, and, and, and it's not just how great those yields were. I mean, they were some, a structured product would yield four and a half before. Now it's nine and a half. It's not just the yield. Great. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing. It's it's the fact that this market is also more dangerous, more, uh, you know, has other risks. The liquidity is coming out. So as an alternative to the stock market, it looks incredibly appealing, you know, when you look at the last two years and kind of what what's happened and what's happening from a global perspective. So you know, in a market that went up for 13 years, almost straight average 12% a year, you know, a four and a half percent structured product is essentially irrelevant. In a market that's gone nowhere for two years and has all kinds of overhangs, and then you can get 10%. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing. So this isn't uh, speculation. It's not uh, kind of crazy risk. It's simple realities that you can stack and, and use capital efficiency of derivatives, which didn't matter forever to get some really interesting kind of structured product returns. So to carry that point on now, why is this, other than what I just already mentioned, important for market structure, it's also what it's doing is it's now that vol is very focused on one part of the market, which is the S&P 500, right? Or the major indices globally as well, but the S&P sits in the middle. And so that vol supply is really focused in one place. So what does that mean? We've talked about this before. Well, that means there's other places where that's not the case. And the geopolitical risks and the rotations are dramatic, right? We're seeing them, you know, from all the different interest rates are going higher. And um, so, so you see parts of the market dramatically move. But if the market is pinned in the middle, that means, what does that mean? Rotation. So we're seeing historic rotations and not just one way, one way, then the other way, right? Starting in 2021, we saw a dramatic decline in, in growth versus value relative to to history, historic in many ways. Tech was completely, starting in 21, had already declined significantly before the decline of markets. And then, guess what? Got to February or so of, uh, of, of 23, and everybody was positioned long put, short call in tech. Uh, people were were betting against NVIDIA because uh, China might invade Taiwan. You know, new narratives. And now the rotation begins the other way. And it's very powerful. It's been incredibly powerful since Fed March of we highlighted this, by the way, in Feb uh, of, of this year, saying it had gone too far and it's time to start playing the other rotation. Well, guess what? Now, you know, as of a month ago, we highlighted it both in our macro flows and we've been pretty public about it. Well, guess what? All the call speculation in AI and all the tech, it had played it out its course. The prices had gone high enough. Our market makers were demanding more. It was too crowded. And we know index wall is pinned. So prepare yourself for a pretty heavy rotation. And here it comes, right? And I think that's the important part when we start talking about dispersion, dispersions that at a historic level, again, single constituents versus the whole, it's right back to 2017 levels, which itself was, you know, out of context from 125 years of history. Not a coincidence. This is because of that all supply in the middle in the market and the S&P and the feedback loop that exists there. So when you start to understand this market structure, you can start to play what's important in the market, which is these rotations. You can start to see when... Everybody goes to one side of the boat. Well, prepare yourself because it can be pretty violent back the other way. And you're going to have people running to one side of the boat, then running to the other side of the boat. 
and not just in growth value, small cap, large cap, all these things that we've seen, which are historic, you know, have driven these historic lack of breadth and other things we've been talking about, but it can even be in, you know, commodities and, uh, you know, uh, it can, it can be in rates and it could be in precious metals areas, which are not as big of all center that can really, really see dramatic rotations as these things start to move. But I think yeah, it's no, critical absolutely. to understand that dynamic. Yeah, so true. I mean, you mentioned about uh, rates going higher. It is, of course, interesting that on the day where we are recording here Thursday, uh, I think German Bunds actually made a new low now uh, in this, uh, you know, downturn lower than last year. And 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 the US is not far behind. I uh, haven't checked any of the other markets. So we are certainly at some really pretty critical uh, levels. Yeah, I mean, transitory 2.0 is also now looking wrong, right? At what point do people start saying, wait a second, transitory 3.0 might not be a thing either. Um, and I think that's the critical point that you brought up in the paper we had. At some point, what the market starts to lose that confidence from the last 40 years that, oh, this is just a cyclical story and it's about short-term supply and demand. There is a structural move in rates afoot and, uh, in, in, and it doesn't go in a straight line. But as markets wake up to that, that becomes a reflexively inflation reinforcing mechanism as we know and that is really the biggest risk to markets block yeah and and therefore it's, it really is very timely and it's going to be very interesting uh, for you and i to have that conversation with peter uh, when we record uh, next week and it'll come out uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks and the other thing of course is that i think a lot of people are surprised by the fact that bonds keeps falling i mean you and i have had some of the smartest of our friends uh, from the global macro fundamental side, I should say, uh, on the show. And even last year, they started talking about being bullish on bonds. And so not to call them out, but really just to say, I think there are a lot of managers, portfolio managers, who basically just got um, too bullish too soon. Yeah, I think the best thing that well, I don't see the best. The best thing that could have, I guess, for, for the bet on higher inflation, right, uh, and longer term inflation that could have happened for this year um, was the Feb-March dramatic decline in yields, the bank run. It That trade was very crowded as we reached 4.1% in the 10-year because it had gone straight up and uh, everybody was, you know, on yields. And so everybody was really betting on higher yields at that point. If you look at this market now and, and you know, talk about people being on one side of the boat or another, um, people are broadly stuck and still in deflation mode now with the, with those uh, you know that ten year rate climbing near all time you know recent uh, all time highs, and that is a when you have the macro effects we talk about now coming into line with positioning, which it much more is now. That's when you have to be careful. Uh, I'm not the only one highlighting it, but these levels in the ten year um, are very important, and uh, you could really see a pocket um, if it starts to go. Uh, and that is really the greatest risk. And again, I think the risk there too is once it happens and you start to break out to these higher rates, higher yields, you, uh, it, it is that at the, at the end of the day, that might be a loss of confidence broadly. Jim, you know what? There are so many more topics that uh, we have written down for today. So what I'm going to do is just simply ask you if there is one that you want to pick out that you think we definitely need to just touch on or we can wrap things up as we are. I think we've done pretty well in covering um, quite a few important uh, topics. Yeah, I think we covered quite quite a bit today. I will say 
from market microstructure to macrostructure. Um, the one thing I guess I would uh, kind of leave people with is, um, you know, I've been doing this for 24 years. You know, markets are reflexive machines. You know, the reality is there's uh, these things can go on longer, right, than you expect, right? And that doesn't mean they're not going to happen. You know, we saw 2000, you know, 1999, 2000 uh, happen. You know, we we're talking about it in 98, right? And, and markets, the NASDAQ doubled before it dropped 92%, right? That's why we got the blow off top there. Um, you know, similar in 07, we were talking about the, the housing crisis in late 06, early 07. Didn't happen until 08, right? And, and again, doesn't mean these didn't happen. Didn't mean they were, weren't historic and dramatic when they did. It's just that the reflexive market machine forces shorts to get squeezed, uh, forces implied volatility to bottom, and there are forces, much like these structured products that I alluded to, that can extend these things longer than you could possibly imagine. Doesn't mean macro doesn't matter. It very much matters. You have to keep your eye on that ball, but you have to be flexible and understand that there are other flows under the hood that, that matter in the short term that can extend the cycle, and you have to be flexible. I always tell people, be water, right? That's a critical point that you have to understand. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the word structured products, but I imagine, but uh, I want to hear your uh, your words, not mine. I mean, are you also referring to the passive investment flows that uh, we have seen? or Not specific seen? to the passive, but okay. those definitely play a dramatic role as well. They, the more vol is dampened, the more those passive flows naturally take us higher. So vol dampening um, in, you know, if you can get markets to not move, you know, uh, or not move big or not to become unpinned, there is a natural drift that comes from so many factors, not just the von and char of the passive flows, just simple interest rates say that arbitrage constraints that the market has to be higher five and a half percent a year if the market's been there. There's so many natural positive flows, uh, buybacks, et cetera, from simple earnings that, uh, that you cannot, um, in a vol pin market during periods of strength of flows, um, really try and bet against it, but there are windows and there are times when those flows are not present where the macro realities have a tendency historically, not all the time, to to play catch up. And they can sometimes do it very quickly um, during those windows. And, and it's important to be prepared. You know, I said earlier in our conversation today that I think the episode on Wednesday will be one of the more important ones we have ever released. I think our conversation today is one of the most important ones you and I have done um, because I think we covered so many things and I just think that, unfortunately, I'm not sure people are fully prepared for what's ahead, but you are doing a great job in highlighting all of these risks. So uh, can't wait to have you back uh, in, in a few weeks uh, again, of course. Now, if you love these conversations as much as I do, um, please go to one of the favorite podcast platforms that you like and leave a rating and review. It really does help us to uh, grow the show. And uh, next week, I will be joined by Rich. So this will be uh, a fun and certainly very educational uh, conversation, no doubt. Um, but we will also be able to take some of your questions if you have some. Uh, of course, this will be going from the vol side to the more trend-following side, I'm sure. But if you have a question, send them to info at toptradersonplot.com. From Jim and me, thanks ever so much for, for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.